Jesus answered Judas, not Iscariot, Those who love me will keep my word, and my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but is from the Father who sent me. I have said these things to you while I am still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I am coming to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I am going to the Father, because the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you this before it occurs, so that when it does occur, you may believe. This is the Gospel of the Lord. So think about the last dream you had. Now, if you're struggling to come up with one, you're probably not alone. On average, according to the National Sleep Foundation, it's an organization I can get behind, uh, we have, most of us have about four to six dreams per night. And if you get as little sleep as I do sometimes, maybe those, those numbers scale back a little bit. And then on top of that, we forget about 95 to 99% of our dreams. I'm no mathematician, but I'm pretty sure that means we remember very, very few dreams. But dreams are fascinating, aren't they? I mean, they can be nightmares, these frightening images that jolt us awake, maybe after watching a particularly scary movie. Or they could just be downright bizarre, leaving us to wonder what on earth we ate the previous night that could have warranted such strange visions. And then, of course, dreams can be happy, right? But dreams are also prone to interpretation. There are whole seminars and specialists trained in dream work who can help their clients hone in on deciphering their dreams and the meaning of them for their lives. Now, dreams aren't just limited to when we're sleeping either, right? We have dreams, or maybe we would call them hopes for our life, too. So there are dreams and hopes for ourselves about our own lives and careers and aspirations and relationships, or dreams for our loved ones, hopes and dreams for our children and their lives and their future, or even dreams we have for the world, rallying around causes and issues that we care about. And then there's always daydreaming, too. Hopefully none of you are doing that now. And I would definitely know nothing about that during, like, staff meetings at Unity. Right, Melanie? Uh, But it seems that no matter what kind of dream, maybe except for the the nightmare kind, uh, one thing is clear, that dreams take us to places that are somewhere else, to these imagined or ideal scenarios that we craft or envision, to things that we hope for, whether They're for ourselves, or for the world, or for others. Our Bible is... Oh, I forgot to show a slide. 
you know, it helps when you should have written it down. This has actually nothing to do with the sermon. Uh, this is just one of my favorite, like, footnotes from an academic paper. I actually don't know what this came from, uh, but it's just fun. This was once revealed to me in a dream. Seminary would have been a whole lot easier if I could just have done this with all my papers. Um, so, like I said, there's no point. It was just, it's about dreams, and I found it amusing, so enjoy. Um, back to the sermon. Uh, but our Bible is full of these dreamers, too, people who dream, right? Perhaps most famous is Joseph. Pastor John preached a sermon in character uh, about Joseph's story way back in Genesis, who has dreams about his own future that gets him into some pretty deep trouble with his brothers. Uh, and then later, when he's in prison in Egypt, he ends up interpreting a dream that Pharaoh has that gets him out of prison and into a position of great power in Egypt. And then there's that other Joseph, so many centuries later, who has a dream one night that uh, an angel comes to him and says, uh, hey, your wife is pregnant, and by the way, it's the savior of the world. Uh, and then there's the wise men who come to visit that savior of the world, who have their own dream that warns them not to go back to Herod. Because we know how that story proceeds. So our Bible is full of these dreamers, these people who dream, and their dreams are as varied as their own unique stories. And so I think in the Bible, dreams communicate something important that God's people need to hear. So that brings us to Revelation. Now, if you were at CTK a couple weeks ago, I preached on Revelation. I did a couple in-depth Bible studies on Revelation. I've been in a Revelation kind of state of mind, so bear with me. Uh, hopefully it'll pay off. Uh, but the book of Revelation, I think, is itself really one long dream or vision, to use John's word. So this dream written down by its author, John of Patmos. Now, this isn't John the Baptist or John the Disciple, or John the Gospel Writer, or John the Horner Eibler. Uh, other things that amused me while writing sermons. Uh, we only know this John by his super common first name, as common then as it is now, uh, and by where he's writing from, this island of Patmos, about 60 miles off the coast of Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. Now, in many ways, Revelation is a kind of dream that can read as a nightmare, right? You have these images of trumpets that announce destruction, a dragon and two beasts, cosmic war, divine judgment. It's not exactly the stuff of happily ever after. And there's no denying that that stuff is in the book. And yet, I think the book is so much more than that. Unfortunately, it's been so woefully mis understood throughout the history of Christianity and co-opted by a select group of fundamentalists who, with a particularly narrow and literal understanding of the book's events as this kind of roadmap or description of the end of the world. But that's really not at all what Revelation is about. So first and foremost, Revelation begins as a letter. This entire book is like reading somebody else's mail, right? So like the epistles before it that make up the bulk of our New Testament, all these letters written by Paul and other apostles, Revelation is a letter. 
and it addresses seven very real churches on earth in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, living in the context of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire sort of looms large over the New Testament. Uh, You can see its influence throughout. And I think that is the key, that this book is a struggle of living in the empire of Rome. Because Rome had its own dream of empire without end. World peace by way of world domination. Which was great if you were a natural-born, first-class Roman citizen who could benefit from that. But for pretty much anybody else, and especially those nations that Rome conquered, your life was less than great. So enter John of Patmos. He hated Rome, and he flat out rejected Rome's dream for empire without end. One of my New Testament professors from seminary even calls John's writing in Revelation anti-Roman propaganda. It's hard to distinguish the two. So where the beasts stand in for the empire, and then the plagues and destruction that unfold with every trumpet and seal, one after the other, are directed against this beast empire's own brutality and domination, this system of social injustice and inequality that results. And so in the midst of all of this, John's dream, by contrast, would have given his hearers, as strange as it may sound, encouragement and hope. Now that sounds bizarre and probably requires a little more unpacking. But one of the central figures in the whole book of Revelation, we heard a little bit uh, in our second reading, is the Lamb. Now the Lamb in Revelation is John's image for Jesus. And that's an image we have for Jesus too, right? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, our Passover Lamb, right? This image is still with us today. And early on in chapter 5 in Revelation, John introduces this character, and then this lamb is kind of like John's tour guide uh, through his vision that follows. But John is here to remind his audience that this lamb has already conquered, that there is another way in contrast to Rome's vision, and that this lamb will get the final word. And so Rome is not the end. Social injustice and inequality and violence and empire are not the end. Instead, Revelation invites its original hearers to imagine a future beyond their present circumstances, a future guided by the certain hope that Christ is risen. It was better than 5 o'clock, still a little weak. Christ is risen. Indeed. Alleluia. Excellent. And so Revelation invites us to imagine ourselves into that same reality, into that same future. At our first summer theology on tap gathering this past Thursday, uh, a ministry I'm willing to sacrifice my time to be a part of, we talked a little bit about liberation theology. 
And this has a movement uh, with its roots in the middle of the 20th century in Central America, including our own partners in El Salvador. Uh, Oscar Romero, Catholic priest uh, in San Salvador, was a, who was assassinated himself, a prominent liberation theologian and preacher. Uh, but this liberation theology encouraged those living under the reality of their oppressive governments with, it, with all of their state-sanctioned violence and uh, and war, to read the Bible in light of their own present circumstances, to somehow envision a future of hope and, and liberation, even in the midst of great destruction and despair. And Revelation, I think, is like that too. I think it's fair to say Revelation is liberation theology. And it's inspired theologians and pastors and Christians beyond the first century world of John of Patmos, beyond 20th century Central America where it takes its roots. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. talks about this image of the new Jerusalem as well, that other great dreamer. And he says these words from one of his sermons. It's all right to talk about long white robes over yonder in all of its symbolism, but ultimately people want some suits and dresses and shoes to wear down here. It's all right to talk about streets flowing with milk and honey, but God has commanded us to be concerned about the slums down here and his children who can't eat three square meals a day. It's all right to talk about the new Jerusalem, but one day God's preacher must talk about the new New York, the new Atlanta, and so forth. King, we know, had a dream, a vision of the new Jerusalem that John of Patmos describes. That new Jerusalem is not some far-off heavenly dwelling place up there, far removed from our existence, but it's here on earth. John describes seeing the holy city coming down out of heaven. And John's dream, his vision at the end, brings him back to earth. But with a renewed sense of God's vision for the world. And I think King, like so many others, understood that vision well. And there's a term uh, for what King is talking about. Uh, and it's called... Public church. Now, this term became somewhat of a tagline uh, at the Lutheran School of Theology, where I went to seminary. And in fact, our entire curriculum is based on this idea of public church. So what is public church? Well, there really is no one answer. That all depends on your context. That looks different in Brookfield. That looks different in Chicago. That looks different in rural Nebraska. Public church comes down, though, to this. And it's just the idea of getting beyond the four walls of the sanctuary, getting into the community, into the world, bearing witness to the good news of Jesus. And which is what made me so excited about unity when I was interviewing here and hearing about all of the servant Partners, the list that goes on for a long time. Two inner city ELCA congregations at Cross and Hepatha. Two addiction recovery centers in Milwaukee and in Waukesha. A free medical clinic at Bread of Healing, the Waukesha Food Pantry, Hebron House, 
homeless shelter, both a Lutheran and a Catholic congregation in El Salvador, and so many other things in between. This is public church. Together, we don't just imagine or dream a future radically different from our own, but we live it and we do it. Today's passage from Revelation also has one of my favorite biblical images that I think relates to this. The tree of life with its leaves outstretched for the healing of the nations. In the hymn text quoted uh, as the opening thought in your bulletin today from our own hymnal, the hymn writer links the tree to the cross so central to our proclamation and our teaching and belief as Christians, the cross. And the tree of life is the cross of life. And I can't help but look at the cross that hangs over our communion table here at the Cross of Life campus, wrapped in leaves. What a wonderful image and visual reminder for us this day but also every day. The cross is always our starting point. But what if we imagine ourselves as those leaves extending from the cross, outstretched for the healing of the nations? Teresa of Avila, the 16th century Spanish mystic, is often remembered for these words that are attributed to her. Maybe you've heard them. Christ has no body but yours, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. We are the body of Christ. We are Christ's hands and feet and voice and presence in the world. This is our calling to dream a new world into being and to enact God's vision for the whole creation. Here in this space, literally the cross, the tree of life, looms large in our midst. Its leaves reaching out for the healing and the restoration and the lasting peace of the whole creation and inviting us into its embrace. Thanks be to God.